Hey guys, we've got a great interview for you today. We'll be talking to Grammy-winning and Emmy-nominated producer Jeff Jampol. Jeff is also the CEO of Jam Inc., which manages a number of incredible artists and bands, and included in that roster are some of the acts that defined California rock in the 60s. Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, The Mamas and the Papas, The Doors. So we're going to talk about what it means to manage the legacies of these icons and his own personal and highly interesting road to management. We're also going to have an in-depth conversation about the historic moments that propelled rock forward, the beginnings of the Los Angeles and San Francisco rock scenes, and then the concert that brought them all together, Monterey Pop. So if you guys want to learn a bit about California rock history in the 60s, take a listen to this interview as we ponder what was in the water at that time. So, Jeff, thank you for coming on. It's good to see your face again. Thanks. Good to see you, too. (laughs) So let's just dive right in here because you have the curious and amazing distinction of being manager to not only legendary artists, but specifically those that aren't with us anymore or aren't active, so to speak. Right? Right. You manage Jim Morrison. You manage The Doors. You manage Jefferson Airplane. You manage Janis Joplin. The mamas and the papas, the list goes on. I mean, you're busy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of those bands are, you know, part of the California sound that we know and love, and we essentially equate with the 60s and 70s. But I want to jump back for a second. I want to ask you what it means to manage these bands and artists, but I guess we should start at the beginning because you have to start with a deep love and appreciation for the music. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I mean, listen, I've always loved music. Um, I've always loved art in many different medium media. Um, but rock and roll for sure was like a rope to sanity for me. And I also always craved context. Wasn't, it wasn't enough for me just to love an artist. It was like, where are they from? Why are they singing what they're singing about? Um, what's happening in politics and culture and history while they're in their prime. Um, and I'm a big believer that you can't really understand and appreciate art until you, or unless you understand and appreciate context. Um, you know, it's one thing to look at a Jackson Pollock drip painting and think about how great that is. But then if you think about context and you look at the, the vision of uh, post-war America, 1948, you know, it's a black and white photo of dad driving his family to church in the Studebaker station wagon. It's Leave It to Beaver. It's uh, Mom, Apple Pie, Coca-Cola. And then you think about a Pollock drip painting in that milieu, and you're like, oh, my God. This guy's a revolutionary. And you think about other artists of that time um, and in different media. You know, there's there's this theme I've been playing with, which is uh, what was in the water. So if you take that vision of post-war America, we talked about Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner and other artists in that time, and then go over to the music space and you're listening to, um, you know, Charlie Parker and Dizzy and Bird, um, and then over in in poetry and literature, and it's Jack Kerouac and uh, Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso, and it's like, what was in the water? Because none of these guys were talking to each other. Right. Um, I, and there's a moment like that, I think, in, in every decade. You know, I was thinking about the 70s and 
you know, you had the New York Dolls and the Ramones playing clubs in New York City, and then you had uh, street and graffiti art starting out in the in the Bronx, and you had rap and hip hop starting in Brooklyn, and none of them were talking to each other, and they were all within five miles of each other. Like, what was in the water at the exact same moment? Um, so again, you know, I, I think context is important. Um, I think that successful artists, certainly the artists I represent, or iconic legacies are important, not only artistically, obviously, but they're important culturally and politically and sociologically. Um, and I think art saves lives and it certainly changes lives. It certainly saved and changed a mind. And, uh, you know, part of representing these legacies is, is protecting them and defending them as well as moving them forward to new generations. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a heavy yoke to wear sometimes. Sure. And you said something about it saving yours. I mean, you had a little bit of a circuitous road getting here. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's... challenging, you know, sometimes fortuitous. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up as a short, fat, non-athletic, Jewish, loner, weirdo outsider. Um, and I, I had skipped a lot of grades and my two older brothers were eight and 11 years older than me. So they were out of the house. So, and then my parents were divorced. And as a result, I didn't have any male peers. Uh, there were no males, my age, you know, the kids in my class were three and four years older, which when you're 11, it might as well be forever. Right. Um, the kids, my age were three and four years back. And, you know, when you start to have feelings and emotions that you haven't experienced before, you, you crave context and you crave meaning. And I didn't have any of that. And I found it in art. I found it in music. Um, and, it, and I was a depressed kid. You know, uh, I remember being suicidal. I remember being feeling really alone. And I, I knew there was something wrong with me. Um, I didn't know what it was. I just thought I was a loser. And that kind of creates this shame spiral. Um, I didn't realize that I had the disease of addiction, which I was about to find out in spades later down the road. Um, but you know, it's, I, I spend a fair amount of time, you know, in counseling and intervention and treatment and, uh, drug and alcohol treatment. And one of the things I'm always telling families is that, um, and it's an important thing and it's kind of counterintuitive, but drugs and alcohol do not cause addiction at all. They treat addiction, right? Mm -hmm. The disease of addiction is there long before we ever have the first drink or drug. And that's what I was going through. I just didn't know it. And, you know, nobody thinks to assess a nine-year-old for addiction when they never had a drink, right? <laughs> because we think, oh, it's the drugs and alcohol that are doing it, right? right? And it's not. They're the, they're the thing treating it. Um, so I was moving through my childhood as a depressed, loner, weirdo, freakazoid. And, you know, and again, I found context and meaning and import and validation um, in a lot of art and specifically music and more specifically rock and roll. Um, and, you know, as I, I, I started my career, I dropped out of college to, to deal cocaine and to manage punk bands. Wonderful. Not a great commercial venture as a cocaine dealer because I was my own best customer. But, uh, you know, I started engineering and producing and producing these punk bands I was managing and really got into it and uh, really never looked back. Uh, and then, you know, after I ended up getting sober in 1989, I got back into the music business and started my company in 1993. 
um, and then started this particular job that I do now, which is representing these iconic artists. I started that in about 2001. Hmm. And you started that because you hooked up with Danny Sugarman, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's connected uh, with the doors. Yeah. Um, somebody had asked me to help Danny Sugarman get sober because he was having a hard time and uh, which he talked about <laughs> very openly in his books. Uh, and I knew who Danny was. I had read his first book. No one here gets out alive. It changed mm -hmm. my life. And, and I helped him and we became friends and I had a management company at the time I was doing current artists and, um, and doing artist development. And Danny and I started to grow closer and we he would start to call me for some advice now and then, and I would talk to him and it just started growing and, you know, we would end up getting together every other weekend or so and talking about what's going on. And, uh, and through a series of events, we ended up, um, partnering up to manage the doors which was amazing to me. Um, and then that's really when I started the journey to learning what this business is all about. Because there's a thing that happens, and I've watched it happen to every single person or company that's tried to do the business I'm doing, which is they suffer from what I call Jackson Pollock syndrome, which is, you know, it's kind of like taking a kid to see a Pollock drip painting at MoMA and turning to the kid and going, you could do that. <laughs> and unfortunately the chief symptom of jackson pollock syndrome is you don't have a clue that you don't have a clue right and i know all this because i had jackson pollock syndrome i looked at the doors and i went i could do this <laughs> i couldn't do it I, and but i didn't have a clue that i couldn't do it um you, you had a clue that you had a clue maybe you wouldn't have done it <laughs> yeah probably um but i did have a secret weapon which enabled me to succeed. And that was Danny because Danny knew everything. He just didn't know what he knew. Um, you know, Danny had worked for the door since he was 12 and a half years old and then became their manager in the seventies. And he was the number one doors fan in the world. He knew more about them than they do. Absolutely. Wow. Um, you know, and, uh, I think what, I think what really worked for us was that, you know, my friend Wayne Kramer has a great saying, which is uh, self does not reveal self to self. Yeah. Very which is why it's, it's always good to have friends around that will hold up a mirror for you every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And I think Danny and I were able to hold up very effective mirrors for each other. And once we did that, um, we really kind of locked into a groove and the doors business exploded. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was scary. I think our publishing went up over 500%. Our, our merchant apparel business went up over 800%. It was crazy. Um, and I, I, I had, and still to a smaller degree, I, I, I had imposter syndrome. I just thought they're going to find out. I wasn't sure who they were, not, at, not completely sure what they're going to find out, but they're going to find out. And I just thought, what am I doing in this job? What am I doing? I'm so over my head. This is the doors. <laughs> Um, but you know, it, as it turns out, I think I was born to do this because I spent my entire career, um, really learning. Well, I'll tell you what really happened. What really happened is, um, you know, managers, successful managers come up being really, really good at three specific things, mm -hmm. which is touring, tour merch and radio. Mm -hmm. So between getting hits on the radio and selling tickets and selling t-shirts at the concerts, that's literally 
90 to 95% of an artist's income. When an artist is active, yeah. Correct. And for whatever reason, we'll call it bad ears, bad judgment, bad luck, or bad taste. Um, I never had a successful touring artist. I had some great record deals. I had artists that, that, that made incredible pieces of art and had a couple top 10 singles, but never a successful touring artist. And so, you know, all of my contemporaries whom I had come up with were busy making millions of dollars and getting really successful and whooping it up out on the road. And I was stuck at home with my thumb up my ass. Um, but when I would hang out with these guys, we would have dinner or sit around and have drinks and talk. And, you know, it became really apparent to me that when they were talking about publishing or about retail apparel, these guys didn't have a clue. They were just bluffing it all the way. You could tell in 30 seconds. They didn't really know. They would use buzzwords, but they didn't really have an understanding of how it worked. And I just thought, you know, I have all this time on my hands because of my bad taste, bad luck. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to become an expert on publishing, uh, which I did. And then I'm going to become an expert on international publishing and then international sales and then licensing and then retail, all the things that all the things other than those big three of touring, tour, merch, and radio. Mm -hmm. um, and I studied them uh, and I worked in them and I did deals in, the, in, in those venues and, uh, and became really good at it and had no idea that I was preparing myself for this job. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. And then, you know, the thing I realize now is when an artist becomes inactive through retirement or death, Guess what? Three things we don't do. Mm -hmm. Right. All the money makers. Yeah. Right. So now, it becomes a business, now it becomes a business of everything but those three things. Exactly. Guess which guy has the expertise in that? I mean, serendipitous. You were setting yourself up perfectly. Yeah. And I had no idea. And then, you know, and then in addition, we had to become experts at book publishing and museum exhibits and producing documentaries and producing feature films and television programs and, 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 and. Yeah. Because this is literally trial by fire. It's not like you were taking, taking on some small unknown band. This was the doors. Yeah. Not only that, but, but there had been nobody, we were the first ones to do this, you know, and I think it came from a long lineage of, rock and roll being looked at as a passing fad mm -hmm. you know if you look back in the beginning of rock and roll you had guys like the beatles putting out two three records a year because everybody thought this is going to be over in a year or two mm -hmm. uh, and the artists themselves i mean the beatles were in several interviews saying yeah well as long as this lasts you know and elvis was doing as many shitty movies as he could <laughs> um everybody was trying to like get in while the getting was good uh nobody really realized that rock and roll was going to last so far forever and certainly no one ever thought about what's going to happen when these icons pass. Right. Um, and we started with the doors. And then, you know, when, when the business really exploded, I went to Danny, my partner, and I just said, Danny, I, I think we're onto something. Like, I think we're really creating something interesting. And if this works this well for the doors, why would this not work for the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or the Hoover Beach Boys or anybody? And Danny just looked at me with this like big eyes, this is blank look, like, what are you talking about? Because remember, he was so door centric, right? Right. And so I said, Danny, let me let me go after Janice Joplin. It's a, kind of the same cultural zeitgeist, same time and space, Northern California versus Southern California, but mm -hmm. a lot of similarities. 
I said, okay. And um, I started talking to the Joplin state. Danny sadly passed from lung and brain cancer in January of 2005, which is right before I signed the Joplin estate. Um, and then my company went to work on the Joplin estate and the same thing happened uh, on a smaller scale than the doors, but uh, same thing happened. And I thought, okay, we were right. And then uh, we have not gone after a client since it's been, I don't know, 17 years. They've all been coming to you. They've all been coming to us. Um, and there's some who we've signed that we don't work with anymore. Uh, although we'll still do certain things. You know, I used to represent the Rick James estate. I don't anymore, but I still do their social media. I do the social media for Peter Tosh, for Henry Mancini. Um, we also uh, oversee all the social media um, for Michael Jackson, as well as for all, all of our artists. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm one of the producers on a really moving um, literally and figuratively, um, a touring uh, Tupac Shakur exhibit, which was all set to open in June of 20. <laughs> uh, so we'll see when that sees a lot of day, but it's really phen phenomenal. So, you know, I help these estates when I can, sometimes as a manager, sometimes as a producer, sometimes just as a confidant or a consultant. But, you know, we went through Kurt Cobain estate and uh, Otis Redding and Tupac Shakur and Muddy Waters, um, the Ramones. Um, I, which was, we co-managed, mm -hmm. uh, we represented the Johnny Ramona estate, which is one of the two estates that controls the Ramones, okay. um, up to, you know, now we just signed a new artist, uh, Juan Gabriel, about a year or so ago, um, who is one of our biggest clients, I would say. And wow. Juan Gabriel was like the Elvis plus the Beatles of Mexico and Latin America. Oh my gosh. It's insane. I remember starting to research it and I went to look at his videos on YouTube and I was like 1.1 billion views, 1.2 billion views. I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, to be managing the, these legacies, it, it literally gives me heart palpitations when I think about it. <laughs> yeah. But I imagine that's a heavy yoke. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine though, maybe you can shed a little bit of light when decisions are made, you know, what rights do the record labels have? I mean, do the families or those folks in charge of the estates, how do they get involved? How do you kind of navigate all of that? I'll let you know if I ever figure it out. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. It's a lot of well, muddy water. I, no, we, we've come a long way. I, you know, I've told other people, other business people, I said, listen, we've survived the first 500 fatal errors. You know, we're, we're, we're finding new ways to screw stuff up all the time. But we're starting at like, Mistake 501. Yeah, but when you hit 103, oh, God, that's going to be a crappy month for you. And when you get 225, oh, my God, 225, I don't want to be you when you hit mistake 225. You got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, but the way it works is, you know, the um, whoever owns the, the, the what we call the intellectual property of the estate, intellectual property meaning all the creative stuff that that person produced. Um, you know, music, lyrics, writing, drawings, what their name and likeness, their, their image. Those are all considered intellectual property. Um, and that's really what we're managing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it just depends who inherited that estate. It might be a wife. It might be a husband. It might be kids. It might be a company. It might be disparate people across the country in one case. Um, but whoever it is, they become our client. And we represent them and we represent their interests in the intellectual property. So we become kind of the quarterbacks. 
And one of the issues that nobody thinks about, I mean, a lot of the model of current artists is, I think for a long time, it's starting to change now, but for a long time, I think most artists felt like the record label was their big benevolent daddy. And the record label is going to sign them and, oh my God, I've got a record deal. And then now it's, we're, we're good to go and they're going to guide my career and they're going to, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Sure. Um, you know, uh, the record label uh, basically creates and owns master recordings. That's it. You know, and um, income from master recordings is probably, I don't know, five, 10% of an artist's income. Mm-hmm. And you know you have publishing companies who administer the the, the songs, and then you have uh, merch companies who will license the name and image for you. And you have production companies, and you have museums, and you have pub- book publishing companies, and all these various different companies. And so you know the, all of the rights are amalgamated with the estate. You know, and record companies may own the masters, but in most cases. Um, they need um, the artist approval to be able to do anything out of the other than just release albums. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, they don't need approvals with some of our artists, especially artists that were active in the fifties and sixties. Oh my God, you should see some of these deals. I mean, they're paying these artists a pittance and the artist has no approvals and the record company can do whatever they want. And that's actually part of our job is fixing those contracts and renegotiating them and changing them. And, I got to say, to the credit of the record labels, most of them have agreed to do that. Yeah, that's great. They don't have to, but they did. Um, but you're on all. the front lines, essentially trying to, you know, do guilt the artist right. Yeah, yeah. guilt them into doing it. Yeah. Oh, God, Just what a fine. job. By any means necessary. What a job, Jeff. I mean, I don't, I, I envy you and I don't envy you because managing someone's legacy is, it's an important task. Um, especially with the, uh, the roster of names that you have. And I guess, you know, jumping back, um, as you know, this season, I wanted to discuss the California rock scene, particularly the 60s and 70s, and, you know, talk to the people that lived it, that write about it or photographed it, or as in your case, you know, manage it. Um, and when I think of the California rock scene, I essentially think of the bands that you manage. Good. Um, <laughs> you're doing your job. And talking about the doors you're about as close as it's going to get unless i have robbie or john sitting in front of me to the band itself i think that's true um so i do want to talk about you know their legacy uh specifically right now so you're going back to the 60s and 70s so you see the doors everywhere right documentaries there are so many different videos out you know you're one is inundated with um a lot of doors paraphernalia and they talk about Laurel Canyon. There's had, there've been a number of specials, I feel like even recently that have come out regarding mm-hmm. Laurel Canyon. Ooh. And the doors are part of it. And, you know, they talk about Love Street and they talk about Jim writing that, you know, across the street from the Country Mart when he lived with Pam and all of that. But when I think of Laurel Canyon and I think of this creative collaborative community, I don't think of the doors. Am I wrong? Uh, no, but, I, but, but let's, let's back up a little bit. Because again, I don't think that you can, I don't think that one can understand it unless they understand context. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the context of the 60s and then we'll drill down to the doors and Janice Chocolate. Okay. Um, the 60s, you know, was a complete cultural, social upheaval and renaissance. Yeah. 
I mean, it was an explosion. And the explosion was driven um, by a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of um, disenfranchisement, a, a lot of lack of power. Mm -hmm. And I think the 60s really started um, when our hopes were dashed when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Yes. And that was at the end of 63. In fact, many historians will credit that as being part of what propelled the Beatles forward. Um, and I, I don't disagree. Um, and the 60s, I think, really started in earnest when, you know, when we found out that we had all the power. You know, we forced a president to sign a civil rights act he didn't want to sign. That was Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we forced a president out of office with Nixon. We uh, ended a war in Vietnam. Uh, we promoted, we invented a pill that, that took care of the consequences of free love. Um, you know, we were changing the world and changing society in very, very radical ways. Um, and a lot of artists started to hold up mirrors and started to write about that and sing about it. And certainly the Doors did, you know. Um, it's, that was at the core of uh, the Doors song, Five to One. Mm. You know, he's saying five to one, one and five, no one here gets out alive, right? But the, the key was um, they got the guns, but we got the numbers. You know, <laughs> look out, we're taking over. And we did, we had the numbers. And all of a sudden, it became this free-for-all in which we didn't know where the boundaries were. Like, you know, we've, we've made so much progress. Do we have another two inches of progress to go or do we have another 2,000 miles? And, and again, it's what Jim Morrison was saying about when he sang about breaking on through to the other side and out here on the perimeter, we're all stoned immaculate. Um, where was the perimeter? Like, how far was it? How far could we go? Um, and it was very utopian. And a lot of the seeds of progress today were planted during that time in the 60s, you know, about, um, you know, concern uh, for uh, clean energy and green initiatives and mm -hmm. uh, health care and certainly civil rights and um, young people's rights and abolishing the draft and ending a stupid war. Um, all of those things were planted in the 60s and still grow today. Um, and so in that time, which really was utopian, we were discovering a lot of new behaviors and thoughts and feelings. Um, and this is an interesting fact, and I don't hear a lot of people talk about it, but it, it's really key to me, which is there were uniforms in the 60s in the fight. In the cultural oh. war, there was uniforms. Hmm. And that way you could tell whose side somebody was on. So if a guy is walking down Sunset Boulevard in a suit and tie, he's not on your team. Yeah. Right? The guy with the buckskin fringe jacket and the goatee, he's on your team. And it was really easy to tell who was us and who was them. Sure. And if you look at um, entertainment and you look at media and culture in the 60s, it really was a bifurcation of us and them. You know, one of the most famous films of the 60s, The Graduate, uh, which was 67, was made by them for us. Mm -hmm. right? But Easy Rider in 69, that was by us for us. We made that movie. <laughs> right? Um, it's a very interesting of, yeah, point. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that they did trying to market to us and co-opt us. But then we took over. And then I think part of the 
um, the, the turning the dream turning into nightmare was a series of events at the end of the 60s that kind of shattered our illusions because Charles Manson was one of us. He was on our team. And the Stones and Altamont, that was our guys. Right. Um, and we went, oh my God, it's not a utopia and it's not perfect. And apparently we've reached the border and the dream is over. And it's not over. I mean, it still grows in certain ways, but, but to a large part of the consciousness of the world, everything kind of screeched to a halt after that. And the 70s changed everything. But in that time in the 60s, um, you know, certain artistic explosions happen in certain places. Yeah. Right. And there's no question to me that the artistic explosion of the 60s happened in two places. And that was London, three places, really London, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. We'll call it England and California. And England was the first one. Absolutely a huge nuclear explosion of culture. And you had five or six people that guided it, and it became Swing in London. And Swing in London was fucking happening. And this <laughs> is 64, 65, 66. And, and the key players were Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles, Andrew mm -hmm. Goldham, who managed the Rolling Stones, Vidal Sassoon, uh, who was starting to cut hair and started to do his new cut. You had David Bailey, a famous fashion photographer. They made a movie about him called, uh, I mean, that Antonioni made. Uh, called blow up mm -hmm. um, you had sean connery uh you had um john frazier who owned the indica gallery which was a really cutting edge uh art gallery in london that's where john met yoko um when he hosted a art, art exhibition of yoko's who was an unknown at that time um and these people these five or six people that i just mentioned they caused the explosion that became swing in london and they exported that to the whole world and all of a sudden it was james bond movies and everything you you see a, a parody of in austin powers and <laughs> yes i know clothing and think about carnaby street and oh, the yeah. beatles and the stones and david bailey and vidal sassoon and and twiggy and mm -hmm. <laughs> um i mean it was just that was everything and then at the same time, what was in the water over in California? You know, you had Northern California and Southern California. Right. And they were very different and still are. Yeah. Um, and Northern California, I think, was the other hotbed where the whole San Francisco music scene uh, exploded, driven by three bands and one impresario. The three bands. Okay. So are we talking Big Brother and the Holding Company? That's one. Jefferson Airplane. That's two. Grateful Dead. That's three. All right. That's three. And the empresario. Bill Graham. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, what really happened in the hate, it was, you know, a lot of people talk about the beat culture and the beats of the 50s, and then they talk about the 60s and the hippies and flower children, et cetera. But the two actually came together um, in a, in a little, little town called Rio Hondo. And so what happened was there was this uh, author slash lumberjack up in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, you can't write this shit. No, you can't. It's and he name. wrote a novel about being a lumberjack in Oregon called Sometimes a Great Notion, which, by the way, was later made into a film starring Paul Newman, starring Paul Newman. Uh, 
And the book was very successful, became a bestseller. And so he took his money. His name was Ken Kesey. Mm. Um, and he bought a little ranch in Rio Hondo. And he, at that time, started, was experimenting a lot with LSD, which was still legal. LSD was a legal drug up until October 6th, 1966. That October was 6th, 1966. That was the day it was made illegal. Prior to then, anybody could take as much acid as they wanted. It was like aspirin. And people started to realize that acid was expanding their minds. You know, I, um, Ray Manzarek from The Doors was one yeah. of my professors, and I had a really great 15-year tutorship with him. And uh, he said something to me very interesting, which was kind of echoed by Paul Kantner from Jefferson Airplane. But what Ray said, he said, Jeff, when we wanted to get high, we smoked pot and we drank beer or whiskey. Acid was for education. Uh. And I was sitting at Cafe Trieste in North Beach in San Francisco with Paul Kantner, the founder of the Jefferson Airplane. We were talking about those times, and, he, and we talked about all the different aspects of the hate. And, and I said, and what about, you know, acid? And he said, hallucinogens were the dessert. How interesting. <laughs> so anyway, this guy, Kesey, starts doing these parties at his little ranch because he's, he's getting a lot of people to come and take acid. And uh, meanwhile, there's these two guys that are on the road, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. Kerouac writes this book on the road and he ends at Kesey's ranch in Rio Hondo, where Neil Cassidy stays and mm -hmm. forms this group called the Merry Pranksters. Mm -hmm. And so you got Neil, who's basically being a Merry Prankster. You got Kesey, who's throwing these parties. And then there's this bluegrass band in Palo Alto called the Warlocks. And somehow they knew one of the guys from the Warlocks, so they kept hiring the Warlocks to come out and play their acid parties. And the Warlocks later changed their name to the Grateful Dead. Right. Um, and the Dead and the Airplane and Big Brother all kind of knew each other. They were all in their nascent stages. And, um, and they said they were talking about the fact that there was this area of San Francisco called the Haight-Ashbury that was deserted. It was nothing but big boarded up homes and empty neighborhoods. It was a ghetto. And uh, I think Garcia and Cantor were talking and they were like, you know, we could rent one of those big mansions for probably a hundred bucks a month and we could all live there communally. Is that how it all started? That's how it all started. And so the dead rented a house at um, 710 Ashbury Street. Right. Um, the, the airplane rented a, a, a big house at 2400 Fulton and big brother rented a house at 1090 page street. And they all lived communally and they all knew each other and were friends. And remember, this wasn't about money. This was just about art and freedom. Uh -huh. And all they wanted to do was just play. And, uh, there's a very famous guy in history, um, Augustus Stanley Owsley, the third, who went by the name Owsley and later by the name bear. <laughs> Owsley was this trust fund kid. He had a lot of money and he was brilliant. And, um, and not only did he figure out how to make LSD, but Owsley's LSD became the stuff of a legend. The greatest acid ever produced on planet earth. There was about 10 different kinds and they were all produced by Owsley, all 10 of them. And he was the one that gave them names. There was white lightning. There was orange sunshine. There was purple microdot. There was blue cheer. And some band bands took their names after Owsley's acid, like Blue Cheer. Um, and he's also the guy that 
very famously designed that huge wall of sound sound system for the Grateful Dead that they used. And he started recording all these bands. But when they first moved to the hate, Owsley was the guy who figured out you could, he made a special tool to undo the base plate at the bottom of streetlights. And he can get into the power. Oh my gosh. And he tapped into the power so that the bands could like turn, could plug in their amplifiers and electric instruments <laughs> and started playing in the panhandle for free. That's incredible. And they were all just playing, having a great time. And kids started coming from all over for these free concerts. These guys live here and there's all this music and little bodegas started opened up and a boutique or two and kids started moving to the area. And that is what created Haight-Ashbury. Incredible. Right. So that's what's happening in Northern California. Meanwhile, in Southern California, you know, the, the nexus really of culture is the Sunset Strip. Right. And you have a combination of film business and music business and uh, great fine art. There was a whole series of artists, that they call them the California crew. I think there's a more formal name, but there were all these really great California artists um, like Ed Ruscha and mm -hmm. Laddie John Dill and John Baldessari and yep. um, Chuck Close, uh, not Chuck Close, but um, oh, I forgot. There's a couple others. Um, Ed Moses, Robert Graham, the great sculptor. Uh, they're all out here in LA. They're living in Venice. Um, and then you've got guys like Jack Nicholson and yeah. you've got, uh, Bob Rafelson. Um, and, and, and then you have these bands, you know, you have love and, and what you would refer to earlier, there's that whole Laurel Canyon scene, which was in its very beginning stages. And mm -hmm. out of Laurel Canyon came, you know, Mamas and Papas and Joni Mitchell and Buffalo Springfield and the birds. So you had, that was the whole Laurel Canyon scene and Jackson Brown and J.D. Souther living together. And then there was these guys who were singing backup for Linda Ronstadt. They formed a yeah. band called the Eagles. Something called the Eagles. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, um, and then from Venice, you had the doors mm -hmm. and you had all these great fine artists. Uh, and then in Hollywood, you had love, but they were all coming together on the sunset strip. Right. Which had really changed. Yeah. I mean, Ed Ruscha, one of his most famous projects was he literally, he photographed every square foot of sunset strip in 1966. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Incredible. Um, and so, but the LA scene was very different. And it wasn't all hippies and flowers. A lot of it was mercenary. A lot of it was uh, dark and edgy. There were some really great noir writers like John Henchy, um, who wrote City at Night, which mm -hmm. Morrison took the lyric from that title during L.A. Woman. And you had Nathaniel West and Data Locust, and you had uh, Elmore Leonard and other guys who were writing about that very dark, noirish L.A. vibe. Um, when the Sunset Strip was first formed, when, when L.A. first incorporated in the early teens as a city, right. Sunset was outside the city limits, and so it didn't have law enforcement. So that's exactly. what started the culture of the Strip as an underground place. They had um, bordellos and speakeasies. And, right. Um, but by the time this is happening, this is the 60s, it's all L.A., and it's being patrolled by the LAPD. In fact... Um, one of the greatest songs that Buffalo Springfield did, which is uh, For What It's Worth, was all about an incident that happened on the Sunset Strip, which is um, so many kids were coming out to the Strip at night um, 
that the local politicians and, and the homeowners and uh, the them, not mm-hmm. us, them was pissed off that us was coming to the, all these kids were coming out. And so the police unilaterally, unilaterally declared a 10 p.m. curfew. Mm-hmm. You had to be at home by 10 p.m. Otherwise, you'd get arrested. Trying to shut down the Sunset Strip and the kids weren't having it. And so they all gathered in front of Pandora's box one night, which is one of the clubs, which is right at the little triangle of Sunset and Crescent Heights. Um, and they started writing. Uh, and that's what that song, for what it's worth, is about. It was that mm-hmm. night. And it went on for like a week until the police finally rescinded the curfew. Right. Um, and Stephen so Stills was driving through it and wrote the song. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you had a little bit of an enclave of a, a very natural hippie, um, you know, community in Little Canyon, um, which was part of that whole scene, but it wasn't, it wasn't the scene, part of it. Uh, so, the, you know, really Northern California and Southern California were quite different in, in ethos and zeitgeist, but combined together, it made this really incredible scene with all these bands. So one of my artists, The Doors, was from Southern California. One of my artists, Janice Joplin, was from Northern California. Mm-hmm. Completely different scenes, but both happening at the same time concurrently. And Northern California didn't necessarily look favorably upon everything that was happening in Los Angeles. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> but even today, there's such a divide. There's such a cultural divide. Every couple of years, people in Northern California are trying to put forth a secession vote on the ballot to secede from California. <laughs> so this has been kind of longstanding, this feud. Correct. Uh, and and so getting back to, you know, I guess initially, um, what I had asked is with the doors in terms of their position and everything that was going on, you know, in Los Angeles. So like you said, you know, Laurel Canyon was a part of this Southern California scene and everything that was transpiring here and thriving here. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are sometimes thrown in with that whole Laurel Canyon zeitgeist. Not zeitgeist. really. I mean, the doors had, you know. Jim Morrison rented a house in Laurel Canyon for about six months. Yeah. And lived there with Pam and wrote Love Street while he was there. A very, very different scene. And I, and I guess that's why, yeah, I wanted to bring it up because I think people tend to kind of lump everything together. And there were so many things that were happening in that scene during the well, late it was crossover. You know, John and Robbie had a house they were renting in Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one night Jim Morrison came over and he was flying on acid, but he was really depressed like almost suicidal depressed and they were trying to get him in a bigger, better mood and they were trying to cheer him up and they just couldn't. And finally, Robbie said it was about four 30 or five in the morning. Robbie said, let's hike up to the top up to Appian way and let's watch the sunrise. Maybe it'll make you feel better. Mm-hmm. So they watched the sunrise and they hiked back to their apartment. All of a sudden Jim just furiously started scribbling and he wrote, people are strange. Um, and that, and then felt, felt some felt immediately better. So that happened in Laurel Canyon. <laughs> and I think, isn't that where they also shot Waiting for the Sun? The album cover? Uh, no, I think that was out in somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's a very interesting um, dichotomy looking at these two very separate scenes. But when you look at the influential music that came out of that time, 66 to 70, I would say, it's all California. And I wouldn't so much, say that. I would say 65 to 69. 65 to 69? I mean, you're off or so? 
Well, I mean, although the Eagles didn't really get big until later, and Linda Ronstadt, so no, Linda Ronstadt I mean, member was in a band called Stone Ponies. Yeah, that were late '60s. Kids. Yeah, yeah, and she, she was her own in the '70s, trying to make her mark down at the Troubadour and all that was happening there. And oh. you know, and the Eagles were backing her, and I don't even think they started till '71. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. So there was a magic, like you said, there was something in the water that lasted at least a good 10 plus years. And it's fascinating to me to look at the two communities and how very diverse and different they were. And then I've read quite a bit about, you know, them all coming together under John Phillips and Lou Adler, um, you know, their direction when they were putting together uh, Monterey Pop, Monterey Pop Festival. And yeah, essentially and that was, was a really good example of, of North clashing with South. Exactly, exactly. And you've got this movie that's done by Pennebaker that the LA bands, and maybe I'm wrong, but the LA bands seem totally on board with, Northern California bands not necessarily having it. They didn't want any of that Hollywood shit happening, but they came together and one incredible mind-blowing concert. And obviously there were other bands as well that were there that were outside, you know, um the california scene but it was to me this cultural moment blending of the two scenes so beautifully and why weren't the doors there um why weren't the doors there um the doors were doing something i forgot what they were doing the doors were huge right then um the doors had the number one song in the world Fire. And then they had previous commitments and they were on, they were doing concerts. Um, and there was, I mean, several bands couldn't be there. The Beatles were going to be there too. Oh, to have been there. In fact, you know, when the Beatles finally, they, when they canceled, they couldn't do it. Um, the four of them got together and, and they designed a poster and then signed it all to loot. And he's got that original piece in his house. It's pretty amazing. Oh my gosh. I would love to see that. Oh, that's incredible. And they did it as an apology. And, you know, Brian Jones came there with Andrew Lou Goldman because Andrew was on the board with John Phillips and um, Lou Adler. Lou and Andrew have been very close friends since then. Um, it wasn't so much. There was a distrust of Southern California by Northern California because Southern California was seen as being a little more mercenary, a little more slick, a little more Hollywood. I mean, that's where Hollywood is. And Northern California was free, easy for the people. No one was doing it for the money. Um, and, you know, Lou and John and Andrew and the other board members were able to convince most of the Northern California bands to come and participate. And then when they got there, in fact, I was talking about this with Lou. I said, and when they got there, you asked them to sign these releases to be filmed, which no one had told them. He's like, yeah, sometimes, like literally as they were walking on stage. <laughs> And the managers and the bands were like, see, this is why we mistrust Southern California. We were making this about a beautiful event for, to make music for the people. Now you want to make this film and you want us to sign releases. Like, screw you. Um, which is why Janis Joplin wasn't filmed. Got it. Right? And her first performance, Big Brother and the Holding Company's first performance was so incendiary and blew everyone away that... Um, some of the bigger artists backstage and some of the managers were like, you gotta, you, you gotta film this. And they're like, it's too late. They finished their set. And um, 
And the organizers went to Big Brother and their manager and said, you know, um, we'll give you a second slot if you let us film it. And their manager, Julius Carpin, was saying, no, no, screw you. And uh, a lot of the other artists and managers went to um, Albert Grossman, who happened to be there. And Albert was uh, this very sage New York manager who managed Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary and others. Um, but Grossman was, seeing as, was seen as being probably the biggest American manager. Mm. Um, and, certain, you know, Bob Dylan doesn't get bigger right. than that. No. Um, and he happened to be there and they were telling Albert, Albert, you got to go talk to this manager. You got to talk to the band. Um, you got to get him to allow us to film it. And finally he did. And they finally agreed and they gave him a second slot. And that's what you see in the Monterey film is the second performance. Uh, and after that, Albert ended up, they ended up firing Julius Carpet and Albert ended up being their manager. Wow. What a story. Well, I wanted to ask you really quickly, because I know Jim Morrison had a book come out on June 8th, The Collected Works of Jim Morrison. Correct. That is, I mean, a definitive piece of work. And you are so close to it all. And I think you really get a sense of who these artists were by being so close to all of their works and the things they've created. Yeah. How, how would you describe Jim? Um, well, it's funny because we're now, we're making a feature documentary, uh, on Jim Morrison. Hmm. Uh, it's going to be directed by a wonderful director named Tom Zimney. Uh, and I'm producing it along with a production company called Gunpowder and Sky and a producer named Jeff Pollock, who actually produced the, uh, the two-part Laurel Canyon, um, documentary on epics. Okay. Um, Jim, you know, here's the thing. Jim was a polymath. Uh, Jim was an incredible human being, like by any standard. Um, he wasn't a rock and roller. He never started out that way. He was a writer and a poet. And he came to California to go to film school at UCLA. Um, and that's where he met Ray. And that, that was the genesis of the doors. But Jim was already a published poet by that time. And in fact, after he graduated UCLA, he said he was going back to New York to work on his writing. And that summer, Ray ran into him on the beach in Venice. And he said, I thought you were going to New York. And Jim said, no, I'm living on Dennis Jacobs' rooftop and I'm just writing poetry. And Ray said, really? What are you writing? And Jim said, you know, actually, I think some of them would be really good rock and roll songs. And Ray was like, well, let's hear one. And Jim was like, nah, I'm not a singer. I'm just a writer. He's like, come on, sing me one. And Jim's like, I'm not a musician or a singer. And Ray is like, it's just you and me. He goes, all right, well, I wrote this one this morning. It's called Moonlight Drive. And he just closed his eyes and started singing it to Ray. And Ray was like losing his mind and said, I think we should start a rock band. And Jim was like, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing because it's a way to get my poetry heard. And, and Ray said, well, what are we going to call it? And Jim was like, oh, I already know. It's The Doors. Um, so that's how they started. Um, but Jim, you know, published a three, four books of poetry and he wrote a film script and he wanted to get into acting and directing. Um, you know, he, he left the doors and he left right in the middle of mixing the last album to move back to Paris with Pam right. to work on his writing. Um, and when you look at that collected works, you see some of the stories and you see the lyrics and you see the poetry and, there's actually, I think, 15 or 20 Doors songs in there that had, had never been recorded that I didn't even know existed. That were laid out as That's Doors. Incredible. Songs. 
Um, and I you mean, look at some of the stuff he wrote when he was a teenager. Um, you know, Jim passed away at 27 years old. He had created everything he created by 27. Like, what yeah. were you doing at 27? I mean, what am I doing right now? You <laughs> um, all feel like underachievers. And Jim, you know, Jim was a rock and roll star. He was the leather trousers clad lizard king prowling the stage looking like a Greek god. And all that's true. And that's a part of Jim. Um, but there's also all these other parts, you know. He had this little parlor trick that he liked to do. Um, you know, he never cared about possessions. His car was given to him. Uh, the, the label decided to buy each one of the doors a, a gift when they went number one. Ray got a organ and Jim wanted a car. And so they bought him a Shelby Cobra. Um, but he never owned a house. Um, you know, he always rented, really never cared much about possessions, except his books. He had thousands and thousands of books, and he took those with him everywhere. Those books, he was never without his books. And he had this thing that he was doing with his friends, and several of his friends have recounted this for me. Is wherever you went with Jim, there may be no furniture, but there'd be books everywhere. And he would just turn his back and he would say, pick one book, any book, read me one paragraph, and I'll tell you what book it is. And he never missed. And we're talking about Rambeau and Baudelaire and, you know, um, Sophocles and Aristotle and, you know, William Blake and on and on and on. And on. This is some deep stuff. Yeah. It's almost like he wasn't meant for this time. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was talking to his father before his father passed. His father was a rear admiral in the Navy and I was visiting them in Coronado. And his father, who was a deeply religious man, decided to learn to read, write, and speak Aramaic at 73 years old so he could read the Bible in its native language, which he did. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's the kind of lineage you're Yeah, I was just going to say, that's where it came from. Incredible. Yep. Incredible. Oh, he's such an enigma. Yeah, well, so. we're going to try and uh, de-enigmaize him. <laughs> I'm sure you will. And I know Robbie's got a book as well coming out, right? Set the Robbie's Night on book, Fire. Uh, Set the Night on Fire is coming out in October. John's just came out last November. Called yeah, Meetings with Remarkable on. Musicians and Others. Oh, wow. It's That's a really incredible. interesting book. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like 12 or 14 essays, basically, or chapters on different <laughs> people that he's met and learned about spirituality through their gift, most, most of which are musicians, but some like Robert Bly. Mm -hmm. or others who are um, filmmakers or psychologists. But, uh, you know, what he learned from Elvin Jones, from Miles Davis Band, or from Ravi Shankar or Carlos Santana, and he's got chapters in there on Jim and Ray as well. Um, Interesting. It's a fascinating book. To check that out. Wow. So, yeah, so you got See all three of them. Yeah, no kidding. They're all doing stuff. Oh, Jeff, and you're busy. We're busy. <laughs> well, Thank you. Thank you for coming on. This was such an interesting chat. As always, you're just such a wealth of information. I can just sit here and listen to you forever. Thank you. By the way, one thing is I, I'm not 100% certain about whether Waiting for the Sun was shot in Topanga or Little Canyon. So I can't say absolutely no. I just think no. <laughs> okay. Well, I could be right then. <laughs> could be right. I could be wrong. Oh, that's I right. crazy. Yeah, exactly. Set you up. Well, TBD. 
All right. A big thank you to Jeff Jampol for coming on to My Rock Moment. And if you guys listening are curious to learn a little bit more about what Jam Inc. does and what's happening with his incredible roster of clients, be it book releases, film releases, etc., visit wemanagelegends.com. And I put it in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you at the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.